Amen. Well, good morning. Open your Bibles with me, beloved, to the Gospel of Mark. Many thanks, of course, to Cam and Diana and Brady for leading us in worship to our King. Of course, I want to extend thanks as well to Edward Heinze for ministering the Word to us, drawing our affections heavenward toward our Messiah. Wasn't that a blessing for us all? Beloved, we arose this morning and we have gathered with intentionality to hear the Word of God expounded upon and applied to our lives. We desire to be good soldiers of Jesus Christ. But what does that mean? What does that look like? And some today would suggest it's by maybe taking over culture, and government, and politics, the media, and education, to bring the kingdom of God to earth, to take dominion of the earth in Jesus' name. We have entire strains within evangelicalism that, that teach that when Satan tempted Adam and Eve that they, and they fell, that Satan took away man's dominion of the earth, and that the church is God's instrument to take dominion back from Satan, that we need to get to work in Washington because Jesus will not or cannot come back until the church has taken back this dominion by gaining control of the earth's governmental and social institutions. Beloved, that's not the gospel. That's not the call of Christ in Scripture. But that type of what is known as dominion theology is now mainstream teaching within modern evangelicalism. And yet there was not word one in the gospels or the epistles about fixing that wicked Roman government, only to repent and believe the gospel. That's the beginning of being a soldier for Jesus Christ. Now, there's nothing wrong at all with influencing our culture and politics by voting and running for office. It's wonderful. We want as godly a government as we can get that we might lead a peaceable life. But that's not the gospel. That's not soldiering for Jesus. God did not give legal authority over the world in Genesis 1 to man that Adam and Eve somehow lost when they sinned. God gave man stewardship of the world in Genesis 1. God gave Adam and Eve, he gave mankind administrative rule over the plants and the animals in Genesis 1. Beloved, when Adam and Eve fell, no dominion was lost. God was the master. He is the master who has made us managers and stewards of what he has made. Satan has taken nothing from God. Understand this biblical precept and our place in the world and our role in the world as Christians are going to make a lot more sense. Yes, vote. Promote the godliest candidates. Yes, be active in government. Be the best citizen you can be. But understand that when we do that, we are doing it unto God. We are doing it from a desire to see righteousness flourish. We are not returning anything to God that was lost. We are not taking back any territory. God has not lost anything from the beginning. There is no domain to be conquered or taken over. What Satan has, what he possesses as the prince of the power of the air, he was allowed. He has been given reign over many areas. Just turn on the news. But remember that the devil may be the devil but he's on a leash. And God is allowing that which he hates to accomplish that which he loves. It is for a season. 
And there is coming a new heaven and a new earth. Satan will be bound no matter who is in Congress or the White House. We are not called to be isolationists. We are to be shaken out as salt among the people, giving flavor and preserving wherever we can, sharing the good news of Christ, pointing to our risen Savior, and walking that beautiful, old, worn path of the gospel. Arguably the greatest theologian on our shores, Jonathan Edwards, he opined on what it means to be a good soldier of Jesus Christ. What does it mean to soldier on? It is beautiful in its simplicity. Listen to his words this morning, beloved. Quote, the strength of the good soldier of Jesus Christ appears in nothing more than in steadfastly maintaining the holy calm, meekness, sweetness, and benevolence of his mind amidst all the storms, injuries, strange behavior, and surprising acts and events of this evil an unreasonable world, close quote. To stand unmovable in a shaking world because of who our Savior is, steadfast in our mind, a holy calm, a meekness, a sweetness. It defies logic in the midst of the insanity, doesn't it? And yet by God's grace, there you stand. So if you dare turn on the news this week, if you encounter all manner of what it means to live in a fallen world this week, soldier on, soldier on, steadfastly maintaining the holy calm, the meekness, the sweetness and benevolence of your mind amidst all the storms, injuries, strange behavior and surprising acts and events of this evil and unreasonable world. And therein we bring glory to God in our lives. Amen? Amen. Well, we last left off, if you'll recall, a couple weeks ago now, completing our three-part series, mining the depths of a three-pronged attack brought against Jesus by all three elements of the Sanhedrin. We had the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the scribes, and of course even the Herodians got into the mix. If you missed that three-part series, it's available online. We really did a deep dive into all these groups and what their role was. Indeed, how God would use each one of their devious plans and attacks to move along the divine timetable towards Jesus' death and our redemption. Of course, they want this troublemaker from Galilee gone. He's cost them immense amounts of money by clearing the temple. He's caused them to lose face. He's damaged their pride by their by his scathing parable of the vine growers, we know that they understood perfectly that Jesus spoke about them, only throwing gasoline on the fire. At the upper echelons of the Sanhedrin, Jesus' death warrant was already signed. Of course, enraging them even further, all three attacks against Jesus had utterly failed. Right? Their hope and their desire to get Jesus to trap himself, to indict himself either against the law or against Rome itself, had failed. And these assaults came one after the other. When we step back and we look at these one after the other, it's really hard to believe we're still in Wednesday of Passion Week. That's what I call a long day. Of course, Mark dedicates almost 40% of his gospel to Passion Week, so we've expected to spend a good deal of time in these very full days leading up to the death and resurrection of our Lord. Today we march on, still in Wednesday of our Savior's final week, with Jesus continuing in the temple. 
But today we're going to notice a shifting of the tide. Up until now, during these attacks on Jesus, three in a row, Jesus has been on the defensive, hasn't he? He has been answering their charges and traps. In fact, most of Jesus' interaction throughout his ministry has been one that we would consider defensive. He spent a lot of his time answering charges and answering questions. And his defensive game has been masterful. Stopping the religious leaders of Israel in these latest attacks from scoring the goal they had hoped for. But today we're going to see the ball switch hands with Jesus now going on offense. And that is fitting as our text today will be the last really official conversational interaction that Jesus will have with the religious leaders of Israel. This is it. And after all that's been said and done, here we are. Now, considering likely the hundreds of interactions that Jesus had, especially with the the more small-town Pharisees that have been haunting his steps for three years now, this is it. Of course, there will be words exchanged during Jesus' trial, etc., but this is the last time that he will teach them, that he will appeal to them. And given that, it's fascinating the direction Jesus takes, the approach he uses. The last hurrah is going to focus on the issue of identity. The last interaction is going to say, we have a crisis of identity in Israel. Now, psychology today puts an identity crisis as applying to you, right? A self-identity crisis. Now, it's no surprise there in our age of narcissism, but that's not the identity that truly matters. There exists a crisis of identity that truly is a crisis. And how that crisis resolves carries eternity in the balance. So with that, beloved, let's look to our text this morning. Mark 12, 35 through 37. Mark 12, 35 through 37. And Jesus began to say, as he taught in the temple, how is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself said in the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So in what sense is he his son? And the large crowd enjoyed listening to him. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we approach this text, we are eminently grateful that the Holy Spirit has preserved this for our edification and for our growth. Heavenly Father, I do not know every need that is in this congregation this morning, but you do. So as always, we ask that the arrow would find its mark, that the seed would be planted in good soil and bring forth fruit 30, 60, and 100-fold in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Well, some may recall just over a year ago, we found ourselves toward the end of Mark chapter 8. I know that seems like an eternity ago, but in what was really described as the pinnacle of Mark's gospel, it was the crescendo, right? We were brought north to the city of Caesarea Philippi, and there Jesus and his disciples, they were witnessing all manner of pagan idolatry before bringing them back south for the final time. 
Jesus had brought them to the most politically, religiously charged area that you could think of. Caesarea Philippi was like a a pagan temple wrapped in a red light district wrapped in Washington, D.C. It was truly foul, everything that they were witnessing in this area. And recall that it was here that Jesus asked the question. Notice not a question, but the question. The only question that ultimately matters. The question that every listener this morning has had to grapple with and answer. What was it? Who do people say that I am? Now, because this is a familiar passage to us, it really doesn't ring odd in our hearing. But in truth, it's a terribly unusual question. When you're at a get-together or a party, what do people ask? Most people ask, what do you do, right? What do you do? People ask what you do. They don't ask who you are. Who do people say that I am? This is a question of identity. Of course, Peter's response was heard as a shot throughout the entire cosmos. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. The crescendo of Mark's gospel in that pagan city revolved around the topic of identity. Are you going to get me right? Do the disciples have a true identity crisis? Not of who they are, but the ultimate identity crisis. Do they know who Jesus is? Now, Peter's crisis of conscience was not relieved when he found himself. That's not the identity crisis that mattered. But when the veil was removed by the Father and he saw Christ for who he was, only then was the ultimate identity crisis resolved. But sadly, it's not only Peter. It was not only the disciples who suffered this. The entire nation of Israel reeled from an identity crisis. Not of who they were, but of who Messiah was. And we've demonstrated tenfold throughout our journey in Mark how they had him wrong time and time again. But why? Was Scripture not clear? Was their law, was the Pentateuch, was the Torah not clear? Was the psalmist not clear? Beloved, do we really think that abandoning sola scriptura, do we really think that abandoning the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture is something new to the 21st century? Oh, no. We have demonstrated many times the incredible burden brought down on the people of Israel by all the superfluous teaching and laws. And they didn't read Scripture for the plain sense of the reading, right? What would they do? They would say, ah, the law says this. Now we will go to the Mishnah so that we might correctly carry out those laws. That's what they did. Which, by the way, rarely, if ever, quotes chapter and verse for its conclusions that it reaches. So not only had they abandoned the sufficiency of Scripture, a principle that would not even be a concept to a Jew, but their Mishnah and their Talmud, their oral traditions, their extemporaneous teachings of the scribes actually overwhelmed Scripture. Do you know what happens, beloved, when we replace Scripture with doctrines of men, with our own feelings and interpretations, with even gifted teaching? That's not checked by the word. You're going to have an identity crisis. 
Christ's identity is revealed in Scripture, and it is illuminated therein by the Holy Spirit. If you're not there, you won't know him. You will not know his identity, and that is a crisis. And such a crisis exists in all of Israel in our text today. It is this very condition that Jesus will seek to illuminate on his last true confrontation with the religious elite. So watch this morning, beloved, as our Lord goes on offense. Beginning with verse 35. Verse 35. And Jesus began to say as he taught in the temple. Now pause there briefly. Now, we know that we have quite a large crowd at this point, right? And that all the Pharisees had gathered. We see this parallel account in Matthew 22. Thus, we know this puts us in the outer court of the Gentiles. Now, that's not facts just for facts' sake. Why do you care about that? You recall that this was the area that Jesus had just purged and cleansed. Ten acres of destruction, of flipped tables, of dust and debris and animals. Such a scene. Hollywood does us a great disservice in portraying these teaching scenes that show Jesus kind of standing in the midst of a beautiful temple courtyard, right? With people sitting there in neat rows. That is not the scene. The smells, the dirt, the chaos that had probably still not calmed down from Jesus ransacking their markets of thievery and exploitation. That is the backdrop for the teaching that we see today. I want you to see it. Smell it, imagine it, as it was. Now, it seems like quite a chaotic scene to launch into, really, an apologetic, right? To reason from Scripture. Yet, beautifully, here we are. So let us look to our Lord's offensive play. Back to our text. How is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? Now, we have mountains to unravel with that question. But I want us to first notice that Jesus does open with a question. One of my favorite books on apologetics and sharing your faith is by Greg Kokel called Tactics. I know some of you have read this work and I I commend it to you. It's very easy reading. But one of the tenets of apologetics is to never make a statement when a question will do. Use questions. Questions are your friend in these situations. Questions take the onerous off of you and onto the other person. And thus, we demonstrate here that even a question can be on offense. How is it? Jesus opens. I have a question. How is it? Now, we know Mark's style is very truncated, right? It's abbreviated. Yet we know from Matthew's account of this scene that we don't have the full conversation that took place. But this is the essence of it. So, Jesus opens with a question. How is it? And next appeals to their authority, doesn't he? (laughs) That the scribes. Now, we did a deep dive into the scribes just a few weeks ago. You remember these guys, right? They're the experts in the law. They were the PhDs. Now, not all Pharisees were scribes, but all scribes were Pharisees. Your own experts say, your most educated say, your accepted teaching in all of Israel says what? That Christ is the son of David. That's not speculation. How was Jesus just greeted in his triumphal entry in chapter 11? And those who went in front and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest. If you'll recall, our triumphal entry was not a scene of joyful uh, joyful jubilation per se. 
Once again, thanks to Hollywood's influence, right? They cried out, what? Hosanna, Hoshiana, meaning save us. We're drowning out here. Throw us a lifeline. It's a plea of desperation. Though they were in a far more desperate place than they realized. The triumphal entry demonstrated how to miss the Messiah completely. Because he did not come to do what you want him to do. He has not come to do what your scribes and your Pharisees and your oral traditions have said that he came to do. I'm not going to overthrow the Romans. I'm not going to free you from political oppression and subjugation. I'm going to save a people from their sins. But this title, Son of David, is one that must be understood. When Bartimaeus received his sight in Mark 10, how did he incessantly cry out? Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Consider the angel Gabriel's announcement to Mary in Luke 1. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. We have to grasp how a Jew would have heard that. If we can understand that, we can understand this entire scene. We can understand this entire crisis of identity that plagues all of Israel. Who was Messiah? Who was the Christ to a Jew today? Now, just as an aside, Christ and Messiah are interchangeable words, okay? The word for Christ is just a Greek form of the word Messiah. Same word, anointed one. You could use one or the other. Would have the same meaning. But who was Messiah? Who was the coming Christ to the Jew of then? Indeed, to the Jews who waved their palms at Jesus, to the Jews who were listening to Jesus teach. Indeed, to most Jews still today. Now, a few key points to grasp, and this will come into clarity. Understand, saints, that the Messiah to Jews is just a man. A powerful man, a mighty man, a man empowered by God to do immense and glorious things, but he is still just a man. The Messiah to Jews is not God come down in human flesh. Now, most assume this because we read our Bibles, right? But that's not what the Jews believed then. It's not what most believe now. Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, was not divine. Now, he would be a conquering king, a mighty warrior. But the concept that Messiah would be somehow equal to God would have been nonsensical. That would have been blasphemous to these people. So understand what these people mean when they say, Son of David. It means very simply that Messiah will come from David's line, from David's lineage. He will be a son of David. And thus, Messiah was not seen to be a savior on an individual sense. There was no personal conversion to take place in his coming. Recall Nicodemus in John chapter 3. He was befuddled by this new birth, being regenerated, born again. No, to the Jews, Messiah would come corporately to save the nation of Israel. He would be of the lineage of David because he would do for Israel what David did for Israel. He would vanquish her foes. He would put down her enemies. Goliath would fall again. 
Do we see the crisis of identity in Israel, beloved? They will say, oh, the Messiah will be powerful. Oh, the Messiah will free us. Oh, the Messiah will set up his kingdom and he'll restore us to our rightful place as God's people. He's all of those things. He'll do all of those things. Everything that's in the Abrahamic covenant. But he's not God. He's not God. That's absurd. Why would we even think that? That's blasphemy. And what is Jesus' response now in our text? What's his response? You don't read your scripture. You will notice that Jesus does not appeal to oral tradition. He does not appeal to the Mishnah or the Talmud. He says, open your Bibles. Let's go to school. Verse 36, watch what happens. Verse 36. David himself said in the Holy Spirit. Now we really must pause there for a moment. Mustn't we? David said it in what? In the Holy Spirit. All scripture is breathed out by God, Paul tells Timothy. Peter reminds us in his first epistle that no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Jesus is saying what David is about to say here is the word of God. You may appeal to your scribes, but this is the word of Yahweh. David spoke. David wrote and was carried along by the Holy Spirit. And what Jesus goes on in our text to quote in his apologetic really is the most quoted psalm in all of the New Testament. Psalm 110. Turn with me there this morning, beloved, if you would. Turn with me this morning to Psalm 110. Let us look together at the first verse. Psalm 110, verse 1. A psalm of David. Psalm 110, verse 1. I'll read the LSB. Yahweh says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies as a footstool for your feet. Now, some may not have the LSB, but you'll notice this in your translation. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, if your eyes have a few extra years on them, or maybe you don't look closely, you may miss the two different ways that Lord is written there. Notice the first Lord is capitalized. The second is not. A capitalized Lord is how we would translate the Tetragrammaton, right? Translated Yahweh, the name of God. It was a name that Jews were cautious to use. They didn't want to take it in vain. So we have another word for Lord. Lowercase Lord, translated Adonai. Even today, if an Orthodox Jew is reading the Torah, if he comes across the name of God, the Tetragrammaton, Yahweh, he will read it as Adonai, so as to not say his name. So in this case, what do we see translated in Psalm 110 that Jesus is quoting? Yahweh says to Adonai, come sit at my right hand. Now hang on. Bells and whistles should be popping off all over the place now for them. Not only is this positively charged with pure divinity, but it raises a serious problem with how the Jews saw Messiah. Now, there was no debate within Judaism that Psalm 110 was a messianic psalm, well-known, fully acknowledged, even to this day, as referring to Messiah. 
So here's the conundrum being put to them. You say that Messiah, the Christ, is the son of David. And that's true. He is of the lineage of David. But hang on. David called him Lord. If Messiah is just David's son, is merely of David's lineage, then why does David call him Lord? Uh Uh-oh. If Messiah is who you say he is, just a man, you have a very big problem on your hands. Now, you've got the physical mechanics right. You've got the lineage right. If it were a car, you've got the, the body of the car right. But there's no engine. It's worthless. You don't have the most important part. That car can't take you anywhere. You're completely missing what makes a car a car. Yes, the lineage is is necessary, but you've missed it entirely. And I'm proving it to you by your own messianic psalm. Yahweh, Lord, says to my Adonai, Lord, what? Tell me, what does God the Father say to God the Son? Wouldn't you like to know? Eavesdrop on a conversation between two parts of the Trinity. Sit at my right hand. Do you know what that means, beloved? To sit at one's right hand is to give that person equal authority and position, equal ranking and status. Yahweh has said, I have a place for Messiah. And it is not as a man. It is not as an earthly ruler. It is not as a lesser being. I have decreed and given a place to Adonai. And it is here with me. And it is here at my right hand. Paul tells the Ephesians, these are in accordance with the workings of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ. When he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him head over all things to the church. Hear the words. Paul is enumerating Psalm 110, isn't he? The right hand of God symbolizes his power. That means hear, O Israel, hear, Harrison Hills. All power and authority has been given to Jesus Christ. It's all his. Abraham Cooper, he famously stated, quote, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine! It's all mine. Yahweh says to Adonai, Sit at my right hand. Your name is above every name, forever and ever. That is Messiah. Until I put your enemies beneath your feet. All is subject to him. And what is the risen Adonai now? Listen to John the Revelator. When I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands I saw one like a son of man. Clothed in a robe reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white, like white wool, like snow, 
and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. And in his right hand, he held seven stars. And out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me saying, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Behold your Messiah. Behold Adonai. Jesus closes out his apologetic, verse 37. Verse 37. David himself calls him Lord. So in what sense is he his son? What a conundrum. You're trapped. There's only one possible explanation. You've just had the Messianic Psalm open to you. And you are now faced with the inescapable reality that Messiah is not just a man as you'd been taught. But Messiah is divine. You're shown his humanity as a son of David and his divinity as David's Lord. Behold the incarnation before you. Behold the hypostatic union before you. Fully God, fully man. Co-equal with God the Father. Possessing all authority at the right hand. Crushing all who would make themselves enemies of God. Jesus answered the high priest on his way to purchase our redemption at the cross. I am. I am. And you shall see the Son of Man sitting where? At the right hand of power. And coming with the clouds of heaven. Diffenbaugh writes, quote, If you could sum up the grievance of the Jewish leaders with Jesus, I believe it would be this. Although Jesus was merely a man... In the eyes of the Jews who rejected him, he had the audacity to act like God. Close quote. At the heart of it, it would be this willing ignorance of the deity of Messiah that would be the fuel to send Jesus to the cross as a blasphemer. David himself calls him Lord, so in what sense is he his son? Riddle me this, Israel. You have an ultimate crisis of identity. You don't know who I am. The very Messiah that all of Jerusalem is churned up right now at Passover looking for and talking about. The scriptures were clear. They've been unfolded in your hearing. The very scroll unrolled and and read in your synagogue back in your hometown have been testifying of me from the beginning. I've performed every messianic miracle. The blinding light is staring you right in the face. But you can't see me. You don't know me. You've missed the Messiah right before you. And how do we know that? How do we know? Last part of verse 37. And the large crowd enjoyed listening to him. Behold tragedy. What do you mean, brother? It says they enjoyed listening to Jesus. That's a good thing. No, beloved. That's a tragic thing. They enjoyed listening to him. Enjoy. Hedeos. Where else have we seen that word before? 
Not too far back ago in Mark 6, Herod and John the Baptist, right? Mark 6, verse 20, for Herod was afraid of John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was very perplexed, but he used to enjoy listening to him. Many people, like Herod, like the people here, have a superficial desire to be titillated. Share your faith often enough and you will encounter this type of person. We highlighted this as we preached through Mark 6 before, that people can be intellectually fascinated with what you have to say. It's mental stimulation for them. They're engrossed in what you're saying and you're thinking, great, well, maybe, maybe God's doing something here. But for them, it's an academic exercise. Like the Greeks at the synagogue in Athens with Paul, they love to hear different philosophies, and, and Jesus is amazing, and he's fascinating to them. The Christian apologetic is, is wonderfully stimulating to them. I've had multi-hour conversations with people, plumbing the depths of Christian thought, until finally I realized that this person is a tourist. He's touring your brain. He's looking at all the stuff. It's like walking through a zoo or a museum. The people enjoy listening to Jesus here is no more applaudable than Herod enjoying listening to John the Baptist. The famous evangelist George Whitfield famously said, quote, It is a poor sermon that gives no offense, that neither makes the hearer displeased with himself nor with the preacher. Close quote. If you are not born again this morning, if you've not come in repentance and faith to Christ this morning, I don't want you to enjoy this sermon at all. I should pray you walk out of here madder than a hornet. You should find no rest, no solace, no enjoyment in these words until you fly into the arms of the Savior. Get mad or get converted, but don't dare walk out of here enjoying what you heard. If you are to encounter Christ today in the text, Scripture gives us some sense of what you might experience. Listen to the account of Isaiah encountering the Lord, being called from the Lord in service to him. Isaiah 6. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And he called out to one another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Isaiah has encountered the Lord. And what is the response when you encounter the Lord as one being drawn by the Father, either as Isaiah in his day or in this text today? Are you enjoying it? Listen to Isaiah's response. Then I said, woe is me, for I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the King the Lord of hosts. That is a heart and a cry of repentance and faith. Now look at the response of heaven to that cry. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand. 
which he had taken from the altar with tongs, and he touched my mouth with it, and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Glory to God. Beloved, Israel spent her years in darkness, even though a light would shine so brightly among her, missing the identity, having a crisis of identity of Messiah would keep her in darkness, however much they enjoyed listening to Jesus. They would only call out for his crucifixion in only two days. We read earlier of John the Revelator encountering the risen Adonai. His response, did John enjoy hearing him? John fell at his feet as a dead man. That is the Jesus with which we must all do business. We all have an appointment with the hair and head that is white as wool and snow, and whose eyes are like a flame of fire. But we desire to see his kind face. As one reconciled to God through the atoning sacrifice of his Son, unto whom has been given all things, it's all his. We must know him. There must be no crisis of identity in your heart of who Jesus is. Do not harden your heart, but listen to the voice of the Spirit. Respond in repentance and faith, and you shall see his kind face. While it is still called today, come and know him. Let us pray. Lord, it is the cry of our heart that we might know you. Lord, that the heart that cries out to you might find satisfaction and the deepest need met, the need to know our Savior and our God. Lord, you have given us opportunity today to swim in the depths of your word, to see the beauty of it, to be reminded of who you are, and what you demand. Lord, you are good. We ask, Holy Spirit, that this work would not be lost, that the seed that's sown would not be snatched away by the enemy. Lord, we ask that you would keep us in good health until we can gather together as the flock of God. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.